This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. much going to be in some ways an experiment for me too because this is the first time I've talked about this this new forthcoming book. Um, I think when Elena first uh, I think when Elena first invited me to come and talk what she was expecting me to talk about was this book which was The Point of No Return um, Refugee Rights and Repatriation um, which was the PhD project um, that I did um, and most of which was actually written while I was working at the RSC um, but in many ways I'm actually not going to be talking about this although I think some of the themes sort of you can see where they, where they, where they head um, in the forthcoming book as, as well um, it's partly because although this book is, is obviously great and you should all read it um, it does cost £55 and one of the motivations for this next project was very much trying to write something which uh, was much more accessible to the general public and didn't perhaps kind of sit, um, you know, at both the price scale and, and perhaps the, the the framing of the work, um, making it something which outside of libraries is quite difficult to access. Um, so what I'm actually going to be talking about is this book, which was going to be coming out actually, I think, this week, but in fact it should be next week um, but The Huddled Masses um, which is emphatically not an academic book in the sense of not being based particularly on original research or being intended particularly for scholars or for use as a textbook um, You know, it was written very much with the idea of writing for the general public um, and part of that reason as I've said was, was, was this sort of sense of I think probably most people in this room share um, sort of frustration, despair, anger at the quality of the debate um, both in the UK and wider EU Western migration and asylum debates um, and sort of perplexity I guess at the, the rise of these very simplistic um, but actually very successful uh, discourses um, around the idea of migration as really a, or, or rather less migration as being the solution to a whole lot of societal ills. Um, but the other reason why, as I sort of started to, to, to put this together, I, I kind of decided that what I wanted to do was write something which was much more about contributing to sort of public discussion rather than perhaps academic discussions per se, was this sense that often in seminar rooms like this, you're preaching to the converted. Um, that we're all sitting here and, and working often on one of the most contentious political topics of the age, that uh, you know, one of the most controversial issues, but actually in seminar rooms where we're all largely talking more or less from the same page. We might disagree on the details, we might debate some of the finer print, but actually you have this, this odd disjuncture between an extremely controversial and extremely polarised public, public discussion and an extremely often very nice discussion around details and around around the sort of the, the contextualization of, of asylum and refugee issues within this, this academic context. And it was partly a sense of actually there is so much research out there, there is so much empirical material, but also you know wider thinking um, within this this context of refugee and forced migration studies. Um, but it 
it'd be good to actually try and think about how you might start to communicate that into perhaps different different forums and different discussions. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't debates happening out there, um, you know, but often those are people who perhaps sit outside of this refugee and forced migration studies um, bubble, if you like, um, you know, and, and are often not talking perhaps particularly with evidence or expertise. I mean, you had Paul Collier's book last year as a good example of that, for instance. Um, I don't think this is necessarily a problem per se, that, that you have this humanitarian imperative, you know, what Lauren Landau and Karen Jacobson have talked about, because that's part of what motivates a lot of people to get involved. But one of the consequences of that is going to be that there probably is going to be a, a reasonable agreement on the fundamentals, but yet there doesn't necessarily seem to be a recognition of that beyond that. So... The Huddle Masses was, which is an ebook, um, and I should probably plug it. It's going to be just three ninety nine, so you know, easily affordable. Um, please buy it. Please spread the word because this is, in some senses, you guys are probably not the the ideal audience for this. Um, you know, part of this is really about talking to people who might be interested in immigration and asylum and refugee issues, but who don't necessarily have a lot of information about it which is already there for them. Um, you know, and I have all the information about Twitter feeds and blog posts and things coming up at the end, but um, you know, part of the success of this book does depend very much on getting getting it out there and, and contributing to something beyond this. Um, and I suppose that brings me to the first question that I would like to maybe pose for us to kind of think about in here is, is this question of public engagement? Um, and you know, how could or how should refugee and forced migration studies approach public communication? Is there a role there? Is it, is it necessary to turn the conversation and to what extent is that something which um, should be coming out of, of the type of research and the type of work which is, is being done in places like the RSC? Um, and that's a question I've been interested in for a long time. Um, but I think it's about not just talking about sort of policy impact and policy relevance, but actually thinking about broader conversations beyond that as well. Um, so, what's the book actually about? Having, having given this sort of long philosophical rationale for what it, what it is, um, it's a book which is themed around the question of immigration and inequality. Um, you know, we all know about inequality, it's the buzzword, it's the thing which, you know, we've all, we've all read Piketty, or at least his book reviews. Um, I would admit that I certainly haven't read the full 700 pages. Um, but, you know, there is pretty convincing evidence that this is a, a pretty serious problem in a lot of Western societies. Inequality is rising, we have all these stats which come out um, recently, uh, I think the most recent one I read was the bottom 90% in America only the same amount as the richest 0.1%. Um, Oxfam's study, which got a lot of publicity last year around the wealthiest 50 families earning more than the bottom 3 billion. Um, and obviously, this isn't just about economic inequality in terms of income, but the extent to which, as you have more and more public and social services marketized, equality of opportunity um, also um, diminishing um, and being compromised. And what I wanted to do was look at how immigration fits into this, this debate around inequality, which has become quite a sort of centre of turning point for a lot of, a lot of political discussion. Well, clearly, if you talk to, to people like Theresa May um, and, and, and mainstream politicians in general, the 
the connection is very much mass immigration contributes to inequality. It's a cause of inequality. Um, you know, local workers lose their jobs. Um, they have to compete against Eastern Europeans or illegals um, who do the job for slave wages. This is why people are forced onto benefits. In other words, national society suffers as a result of immigration. Um, and so the prescription is obviously protectionism of, of some description. Um, and in a way, I think that, as the political argument, is, is to some extent a sort of based on you know, what I would say David Miller's kind of work has often looked at, which is this question of the idea of balancing global justice and national responsibility, and arguing that really this is a zero-sum game. Um, and this was then has been picked up by other people like David Goodhart, um, whose book also came out last year. Um, you know, again talking about this idea and suggesting that really you have to choose between migration as a global justice issue and migration as a national protectionist issue. Um, so part of what this book does is really look and try and answer or try and challenge this this assumption and the assumptions underneath this sort of empirical basis. Um, because there is, you know, and a lot of this evidence has come out of work within Oxford, um, a pretty significant cohort of evidence to show that these types of claims are at best pretty exaggerated um, and, you know, certainly ignore much more structural, complex causes of, of low-wage economies. Or, um, but... In a way, just having said, oh, the problem is you'll preach the converted, what I'm not going to do here is go through that empirical evidence and tell you guys um, why um, migration you know, is, is, is a good thing or why Theresa May is, is you know, telling, us, telling us stuff which is, is more emotive than, than empirical. I also, in this book, I'm trying to make a more substantial political, substantive as well, hopefully substantial, but substantive political argument, um, which is trying to show that, in fact, the ways in which this argument is being constructed and used to enact new restrictions and controls on freedom of movement is actually in itself compounding inequality. And the ways in which legal migration is being managed and controlled is, is turning it into the privilege of the rich. And nationalism is really not, in fact, what's going on. There's something which is far more about marketization. So the policies themselves are becoming something which create inequality both within um, citizenship as well as between different areas of the world. Um, so what I want to look at in, in the sort of the, the sort of 30, 40 minutes that are left is, is three questions really. The first is how our understandings and approaches to inequality relate to these ideas about nationalism and freedom of movement. Um, the second is how current migration policies and discourse reflect these understandings or, or these, these assumptions. And how this in turn is actually affecting inequality in reality, particularly not just terms in terms of who can migrate, but actually in terms of the content of citizenship itself and what citizenship has come to, to, to represent or how it's been brokered. Um, and then finally, because I haven't forgotten that I did put refugees in the title, um, ending, ending up in terms of thinking about what this means when we consider asylum. Um, and is refugee protection and our approach to forced migration you know, a protection, a, a barrier against this, this, this push to use 
an creating an equitable migration system, or is it an inherent part of that structure? Um, and this is going to draw on research, which is also stuff I've been carrying out for the Migration Policy Institute and, and, and broader work that I've done for sort of quite a while, looking at, at, at the question of refugee mobility and, and how refugees might be better integrated into migration systems as they exist. So, right. So, migration, nationalism, and inequality. Um, how should we think about this relationship? Um, in a sense, what it asks us to do, I think, is, is to think about the circumstances under which freedom of movement should be a right, or the circumstances under which it might legitimately be considered just a privilege, um, and where we draw that line. In other words, how far should some type of right to freedom of movement extend? And I think once we start thinking about this in terms of just how we instinctively or, or naturally um, you know, imagine freedom of movement, we can start to see very quickly that national boundaries, national rights and sort of understandings of some kind of community start to play into sort of the, the understandings that we tend to bring to this question. So, you know, very few of us would suggest that citizens shouldn't have the right to move freely within their own border and human rights law makes that quite clear that, that that's fairly well established although in fact in the US that right was only confirmed by the Supreme Court quite late um, in, in the 19, what, late 1920s um, and similarly we have the fact that the right to leave a country is, is again fairly well established um, at least as an ideal you do have countries like Eritrea and North Korea and Uzbekistan where exit visas are are pretty much, um, you know, very strictly enforced, but they tend to be seen as pariahs, and that tends to be enforced as a, a um, you know, or, or, or produced as one of the reasons why that's the case. Um, but once we start looking beyond the border, the way in which both law and normative political philosophy starts to make us, um, you know, once we start looking at these things, it starts to look more complicated. So. We have the right to leave our own country, but famously we don't have the right to enter another, seek asylum, but no corresponding obligation to grant it. And the other aspect which starts to, once you think about it, become clear is that when we start to think about migration um, and to what extent freedom of movement should be equally accessible, we're generally quite happy to impose some types of limitations, particularly economic ones. Um, you know, the cost of a ticket, the cost of a visa. We don't tend to have many um, discussions around this idea that actually at some level wealth mediates our ability to move um, and possibly our right to do that as well. And that's what I want to come back to in, in a second, the second idea around, around the extent to which whether you can pay is increasingly a determinant of, of how much you have any ability or excessive, uh, access to, to migration. But I think there's clearly a second aspect which I just want to get out of the way first, which is this idea of, of, of nationalism. And we owe more to fellow nationals than we do to ideas of global justice, which is certainly very prevalent um, among those who would seek to present themselves as progressive politicians, but would equally say that progressive politics requires quite strict boundaries on, on national, uh, on, on, on migration. Um, so in this case, what we're really asking is, well, whose equality matters? 
Um, and I think one thing that isn't up for debate is that citizenship, um, where we're born, determines to a very great extent our economic well-being. So in 2012, the World Bank's economists concluded that more than 50% of one's income is effectively determined at birth, more it's by citizenship, but, but usually that means by birth, um, uh, based on the average income of the country where you were, where you were born um, or, or, or where you live. Um, a very large chunk of our income will be determined by any one variable citizenship that we generally acquire at birth. So in a sense, if, if you have that extent of inequality embedded in a system of, of, of citizenship and a system of, of national, um, national rights to have rights, if you like, immigration is clearly going to be both a function and a foil to that. Um, it's a function of inequality because the reality is that, well, clearly not all citizenships are equal in practice, um, as that reminds us. So... Where we're born determines to a large extent whether we're going to be a have or a have not, and to what extent we might are going to have to move or at least acquire some other form of citizenship to be able to find our way through that and, and actually, um, if you like, evade or, or overcome the inequality that, that's been assigned to us. Um, and also, clearly, this works in practice because if you look at, at migration at a global level, Clearly, the ability to, to, in some way, counteract this sort of arbitrary assignment of citizenship as a result of, of birth through migration um, allows migrants to certainly um, improve their lot. So, you know, the UNDP, for instance, in 2009, determines that migrants who move from a low-income to a high-income country see a 15-fold average increase in income, doubling of education enrollment rates, a 16-fold reduction in child mortality numbers. So, you know, that, that, that sort of all hangs together quite nicely. But the problem is, is that actually citizenship, this, this isn't just about income. It also determines to a large extent, increasingly so, as we'll see in a minute, how free we are to move at all in the first place. Um, you know, increasingly, citizenship mediates um, the economic values attached to citizenship, mediate how much freedom of movement is, is available. And I've done work before looking at visas, for instance, and how many countries are able to, um, how many countries are able to move to visa-free based on the passport you hold. And there's quite a clear correlation between income of the income per capita of the country and, and, and how many countries you can get to. Um, and, of course, um, Britain's right at the top of that, and at the bottom are Afghanistan, Somalia, um, Pakistan, I think, is pretty near the bottom as well. Um, so this, this kind of brings us back to this idea that actually immigration really is about inequality, and this is quote from, from Stephen Carson's, I think, does um, do a good job of encapsulating that, that, that idea that migration control is often about maintaining inequality. Um, but it still doesn't quite get us around this problem of, of the fact that the alternative argument is being made, that what about inequality not just between citizenships, or between regions, between North and South, but between citizens. Um, you know, citizenship, after all, is, is 
only offering us what the sociologist T.H. Marshall called the, the fiction of equality um, when he was writing 65 years ago. Um, and he was speaking as the UK post-war government put in place the foundations of the welfare state. He was quite optimistic. He was really writing and talking about the idea that social rights were going to help to make this fiction more real um, and make civil and, politi- and, and civic and political rights um, actually in the equality which they were supposed to guarantee something which was, which was more substantial. Um, that, I would suggest, isn't perhaps the case today. I'm not sure there is that, that optimism. But I think you know, there is undoubtedly a case still made that restricting migration um, is really about protecting the existence of those social rights and practice, that it's this historic pact between the wealthy and the workers, um, which really makes national citizenship meaningful. And that in order to protect those institutions, um, we need borders. Um, so you have this, this sort of, if you like, this contradiction that the crooks of an argument for migration as a form of ju- global justice, namely that it, it reduces inequality, that it creates um, more equity, is also arguably perhaps the most persuasive progressive case for national borders, that national borders may help to keep social rights intact or, or real. Um, so the case you know, is basically this idea that real equality depends on institutional arrangements such as social security, pensions, welfare, um, that provide the poor with basic goods, that redistribute wealth, and that mass immigration threatens those arrangements. Um, as I've said, I think the book, as I've written it, makes it quite clear that this is an argument which, which doesn't stand up to scrutiny, empirical scrutiny. But I think it is important to, to recognise that I think it is a, perhaps a, a valid question to ask. And it's certainly a, a language that I think we need to engage in if we're interested in, in really talking about immigration and talking about the... You like the, the, the argument in, in value terms rather than just empirical terms as to, as to whether immigration perhaps plays this role or not. And so what I want to move on to is look at to look at how this language of protective nationalism, the sort of quotes from Theresa May and David Goodhart that I put up a minute ago, um, is actually being used to, to mask quite a different immigration trend. Um, one which I would suggest is actually fundamentally altering and, and pulling apart this idea of, of citizenship as a, a means to, to harness equality and, and doing far more to undermine that um, you know, by actually turning citizenship itself into something which is resembling a market good um, and which creates a, a very different flow of inequality um, beyond and within our borders. Um, because I think what came, became clear to me was the idea that, that really as I was researching this, that this wasn't just about ignoring evidence, but actually this argument, or rather not Stephen Carson's argument, but the arguments of, of immigration as, as, as a cause of inequality were, were wrong. They were actually creating inequality in themselves in terms of the policies that they were supporting in terms of the policies that were coming out of this, um, which were ostensibly intended to protect the poor within the borders, um, but actually were doing the very opposite because they were exacerbating inequality by creating different classes of citizens and by locking people in as much as they were locking people out. Um, and you know, perhaps to make this slightly less abstract, 
Um, you know, one very telling example of this was when David Cameron a year ago talked quite seriously or suggested quite seriously that freedom of movement within the EU should be restricted until a country had reached 75% of the GDP of the country of destination. Um, basically to, to provide a, a means by which Romanians and, and, and other Eastern Europeans wouldn't be allowed to move until there was a more parity at a state by state level. Um, but equally as this shows, that would actually mean that, that anyone from the UK would be able to go to Sweden or to Norway or, or to a number of other countries, actually. So um, you can start to see you know, how these, these arguments start to sort of down, start to be a little, yeah, problematic if you follow them through logically. Um, so clearly this isn't a new idea, this idea that money and... and Economics plays a role in, in regulating migration and certainly in terms of how some particularly political powers try and think about who, who it is desirable to have migrating. Um, I mean, Nick Van Heer wrote an article, I guess it was, I don't know, I think it was the late 90s called I Went As Far As My Money To Carry Me and he's just recently written a sort of new version of that um, looking at class and migration and this certainly reflects a kind of much longer term trend, um, probably certainly back to the 1970s and the oil shock it did not before. Um, but I think you can start to see that it's become much more explicit in policy terms um, that what the aim of policy is is to keep low skilled and low paid migrants from moving. And the consequence of that has been a raft of measures that actually harm poor citizens as well as poor migrants. Um, so, you know, to move on from perhaps what, what's sounding a bit abstract and give some examples, I think this is a, a very obvious example. The July 2012 introduction of the new family migration laws in the UK, um, where anyone wanting to sponsor their, their spouse um, or, in fact, a family member um, into the, the UK, um, to show that their annual income exceeded £18,600 and there were additional levels up um, uh, for, for, for if you had children. Um, only the British partner's income can be counted, even if they're not the main breadwinner. Um, if you're trying to bring your elderly parent or your grandparent in um, to care for them, you actually have to show not only that you meet the minimum income threshold, but also that you cannot obtain the required level of care in the home country. Um, so even if you can pay for it, you actually have to show that you can't just buy the care abroad. Um, ostensibly, this is this is really is all about you know protecting the British welfare state, and it's supposed to be about protecting the institutions that make equality something you know material rather than just normative or, or aspirational. Um, but actually, of course, the result is is that the citizens' um, rights are diminished as well because. 47% of the British public would fail to meet this minimum income requirement, and actually 60% of women. Um, so you're looking at something which actually becomes, becomes something which is creating inequities within the citizenship um, body as much as it is um, outside keeping the poor from, from uh, impinging on the existence. And interestingly, researchers from Middlesex University have concluded that the government's may cost as much as $850 million over the next decade because the UK citizens who are left 
as single parents or who are left having to, to wait for their parent partners to, to maneuver their way through immigration limbo um, are obviously less likely to be able to take up full-time employment and more likely to end up relying on the welfare state itself. So that, I think, is one very telling example. Another example um, I'm going to pull from the place that I have spent most of the last eight months in, which is the US, where the migration debate is very different. And you know, that's something, perhaps, which is interesting to think about. But where a lot of the debate around reform has focused on this question of high-skilled workers. And it's very reflective of, of, of a broader Western tendency to focus migration on recruiting the brightest and the best um, and allowing corporations and capital to largely determine who the brightest and the best might be. Um, so high-skilled workers visas in the US um, has been a really uh, an agenda which has been really pushed by corporations, particularly in the high-tech sector, asking very much for more high-skilled workers' visas. Um, and on the surface, this sounds pretty reasonable, right? You've got a global shortage of tech workers, you've got Silicon Valley, you've got American visa quotas, which are basically reducing the ability of American companies to, reduce, to recruit the workers they need. So double the H-1B visas, and that was basically what the failed immigration package of 2013 would have done. Um, is that corporations, of course, aren't particularly interested in, in the, the freedoms of, of the individual, the worker, or, or creating a, a more equal and accessible uh, migration system, or even a more equal and accessible labour market. Um, they're interested in getting workers in so that they can maximise profits. Um, and this starts to be reflected in the fact that the H-1B system is, is, is cumbersome, it's bureaucratic, um, that the quota which is set by Congress, which is, is 65,000 plus 20,000 who've got US degrees, is generally filled within about five days of the process opening in the, on the 1st of April. Um, you know, and they usually have about double the number of applications by the time at which they close off, the, close off that, that um, debate. Um, sorry, close off the, the application openings. Um, and the result is, is that now actually filing an H-1B petition and doing the paperwork and getting it in on time you can well run to five figures. You can afford to pay five figures to apply for a visa, which you may not actually get in the lottery. doesn't tend to be many smaller companies or, or, or non-profits. It tends to be big companies who can pay the H-1B roulette. Um, and even they lose um, far more often than they like. So companies like Apple and Google usually get about 50%, 50 to 60% of the visas that they apply for annually within this, this lottery system, um, despite the millions they pour into their, their lawyers' firms. Um, and a lot of, you know, some of you may have seen like Mark Zuckerberg's forward US, very glossy social media campaign around why we need more immigration reform. And, and but really what's pushing, but the reason why there's so much money coming into this campaign is, is all about H-1B visas and high-tech, high-skilled. And it's pushed very much as this idea of innovation, but actually this is pretty disingenuous. Um, because H-1B workers have to be shortage workers. Um, so it's conditional, their ability to stay upon continuing to work for the sponsoring employer. They're effectively indentured labourers. Pretty well paid indentured labourers for the most part, but 
they have to work for the same employer if they are fired, and remember this is the US, so that is is certainly easier to do. Um, they have four weeks before they, they have before they will be asked to leave the country. Um, and then their wives also aren't allowed to work either. So you have dependency on usually a single income for a family which has moved there as well. Um, so H1B visas are actually, uh, it's not surprising that, that the, the corporations, the capital, are pretty happy to promote this as the way forward because it distorts the power. Um, in their favour because in order to move into this market the H-1B visa holders have to give up their freedom to move within the labour market Um, and by tying employers to employees sorry, employees to employers um, they reduce the bargaining power of of migrant workers Um, and actually in that sense because capital is being allowed to set the terms of this highly skilled immigration um, H-1B visas are compounding structural inequality and a lot of the complaints of American high school workers often can be traced back to the fact that you've basically created a, a, a class of, of high-skilled indentured labourer who is far more compliant with, with demands for long hours or excessive um, you know, additional work than, than you would be as, as an American um, citizen worker within the system. And although I think the American system is certainly more bureaucratic and you know than anyone is either American or has, has ever gone through the American visa system it, it certainly has a bewildering number of categories um, but that type of logic is reflected in, in a number of different um, Western migration systems that have really been about effectively removing the opportunity for the, the low paid to, to migrate legally or the low skilled to migrate legally despite the fact that um, it's not just high school workers we need. There's a lot of evidence to show that even those who are, are recruited on the basis of having a degree or, or having particular skills tend to work in unskilled jobs. Um, and it also ignores the fact that actually structurally there are particular jobs such as fruit picking um, where locals really aren't interested in, in filling the jobs. And, and there's a huge amount of evidence to show that really across the West, agricultural work in particular, is something that is basically more or less impossible to find Western citizen workers who, who will do it. Um, and in that case it's actually not particularly about low pay, it's about other reasons why the labour market just isn't capable of filling that that, that problem. I'm going to pick that up in a, in a right at the end. Um, but you know that question of I think protecting local workers, um, really um, ignoring the more fundamental structural causes of why low pay and, and low conditions might be there, at the same time as as creating a system in which only a particular group are are, are, um, are valued as, as as desirable migrants. Um, yeah, so, you know, just to kind of follow up a little bit on that is, is that's not, that, that's sort of migration as, as uh, something which is being restricted and, 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 and structured in such a way as to exacerbate inequalities and arguably undermine this idea that really all these restrictions are about protecting you know, protecting the citizen. Um, because what we're also seeing, and I have talked, this is what I talked about last time I came here, um, is the selling of citizenship itself. Um, so, you know, we are seeing a parallel restriction of poor migrants' access to citizenship at the same time as an increasing number of states are actually selling citizenship um, themselves. Um, so, this is a slide of, of, of um, 
Hey, scheme which is run in St Kitts in conjunction with the Marriott, um, but um, you know it's basically all about how you get to buy a nice condo to live on the beach and, and get a passport with it. Um, before I go into that, I think it is worth remembering that, that even for those migrants who arrive and earn citizenship in their country in the traditional way that we think about naturalization, the costs are increasingly high. Um, so in the US, for instance, there's been a number of activists voicing concern that actually one of the problems for even for hard-working, long-term legal migrants who tick all the boxes is that the fees for naturalization have, have tripled um, in the last decade and, and now are over $700. Um, so the Migration Policy Institute reported in 2012 that actually one-fifth of Latino immigrants who denaturalize have to borrow money in order to do so. Um, the cost is not inconsiderable, and it's actually often something which, which is seen as simply too expensive to do. Um, but alongside that type of you know, um, economic price of citizenship, we have a much more explicit citizenship market. And as I said, St. Kitts and Nevis um, is the sort of the granddaddy, I guess, of citizenship schemes. It's been running since 1984, um, and effectively, in exchange for $400,000 in a nice condo, um, it has to be an approved real estate purchase. Or you can donate $250,000 to what is effectively quite a shady um, fund called the Sugar Industry Diversification Fund, which is very unclear what happens to the money in it. It seems to mostly be used to fund the re-election campaigns of the Prime Minister, as far as I can work out. Um, it's certainly, certainly you, you can basically get a Sinkits passport, and these are marketed on the basis, really, that because Sinkits was a pro- former, former British colony, um, it's a member of the Commonwealth, and you can travel to about 130 countries visa-free. Um, um, and that really is the, the, the push of it. You don't have to pay taxes. That's also something which the US citizens in particular are interested in. Um, but um, this, is, this is kind of a growing market. Um, you have the island of Dominica, which is set sort of the, the bargain basement citizenship, so you have to pay $100,000. Um, new island states are getting into this, you know, Antigua, Barbuda, Grenada. Um, and what I found fascinating about this is the fact that you have this, this high level of debt in a lot of these island economies. So although you've had sort of increasingly, you know, push to say that you can't, you know, have tariff preferences for your bananas, um, basically the ability to commoditize private passports um, has become quite a valuable Caribbean resource in this, in this context. Um, and what's interesting is that as this, as, this, as this sort of market has taken on, Western states are, are adopting similar programs, um, and particularly in the, in the EU. Um, many of you will probably have read last year about Malta's controversial legislation to allow um, EU citizenship, EU, sorry, allow Maltese citizenship, which is in effect EU citizenship, to be bought by those willing to pay 650000 uh, Euros, um, and this created a sort of big scandal. And the European Parliament condemned the scheme for turning citizenship into a tradable commodity. And in the end, the legislation is sort of on the books but suspended. It's not actually been enacted, I don't think. But the last time I checked, anyway. Um, but Malta was actually the tenth state in the EU to establish some form of permanent residency rights, some form of citizenship, um, and. Basically, these are trading on the fact that as EU citizens, you can move freely across the EU. That's really the main um, reason why these, are, these, these citizenships are, are being 
being brought up. Um, so you have Spain um, trying to rescue its kind of property market um, by saying that if you could invest 160,000 euros in a, in a Spanish property, you could have permanent residency with the rights to move freely across the EU, which were attached. But then they raised their price tag because they, they to 500,000 because they were worried they looked cheap. Um, so you then have Cyprus, Portugal, Ireland, all running pretty similar schemes. Um, and the UK as well has a scheme that if you invest a million pounds in disposable income to a UK bank, that'll secure you a visa, it'll secure you permanent residency after five years. If you have 10 million, the process is fast-tracked to two, and there's a, there's an intermediate price as well. Um, and you actually have to put the money in the moment into a, into a bank. Um, the migration advisor you need to learn um, for, the, for the duration of your period of waiting. And what was interesting was the UK Migration Advisory Committee you know, wrote in, in last year a report which, which criticised the scheme, but criticised the scheme on the basis that it should be setting a higher price. Um, and it should be taking the money and asking for it to be permanently invested rather than to be loaned. Um, so it was recommending that the threshold should be raised, should be doubled at least, and that a limited number of premium fast-track visas should be auctioned off to the highest bidders. So the critique was a critique really, you know, which was as much an endorsement of the principle as it was a critique of, of the methods being used. The idea that permanent residency was something that should be marketable and should be saleable um, was there. people sort of, sort of, well, I don't know, I think people tend to fall into two camps. Either they feel that this is inherently something that makes them feel uneasy about what citizenship means, or it's something which they say, well, what's, what's the issue with this? Why, why does it matter? Is there really a problem with, with people being able to, to buy their way in? Um, because after all, if, if, you know, if citizenship is, is fundamentally unequal because it's arbitrary and it's determined by birth, is there a problem with substituting a different inequality or allowing the market to redress inequalities, at least for those people who can afford it? You know? But I think there is a, a more pernicious or a, a more problematic um, problem with selling citizenship because it actually changes the values which are attached to citizenship itself um, and compounds the inequalities within citizenships, even as you might be able to escape if you're rich, the, the inequality between your citizenship and and another one. Um, so, for instance, St. Kitt's citizenship program has been estimated to bring in about 150 million to the islands. But because it's actually reduced the extent to which the government has to rely on a local tax base or have any form of accountability to, to the citizens who are, who are like the local citizens, um, it actually hasn't had any impact on inequality or, or poverty rates within the islands. Um, they've actually remained the same or, or grown slightly, um, partly because this money, in effect, is, 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 is not... It's not anchored to any form of, of community or democratic accountability. In St. Kitt's case, you don't actually ever have to even visit the island to, to get citizenship. And so this ability to create a class of wealthy, non-resident elite citizens has arguably weakened the state's need to actually account for any of its failings or, to be, or, 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 its, or the ability of local citizens to, to hold power to hold power to accountable standards. <coughs> Um, and of course the result of this is that many of the St. Kittian citizens have actually ended up um, moving um, uh, and emigrating um, to escape 
this economic inequality, but increasingly through grey or black market routes because the, the legal market route, the legal migration routes are, are increasingly difficult to access. So hopefully that kind of suggests where where this, this argument I think is, you know, not just about empirics but actually about values as well, which is this idea that we sold these policies as ideas that they defend the national interests. But in the final analysis, you can't restrict freedom of movement in the wealthy and make it a privilege you pay for without also disadvantaging poor citizens and poor migrants, but exacerbating inequality on both sides of the border. But this brings me on to this question of, of refugees, because critics you know, have argued perhaps that this is overkill, that inequality is the wrong metric by which to judge the ethics of migration rules. And, you know, they do point often to this idea that, well, fine, we need some basic minimal guarantor of, of, of some sort of, of, of freedom of movement. But, well, that's refugee protection. Um, that is the idea that, well, everybody has the right to, has the, has the ability to, to move and, and seek sanctuary if they're in fear of their lives and not to be returned, and that that is the appropriate guarantor of a minimal right of freedom of movement, and that everything else is, you know, just, just sort of nice liberal um, scruples. Um, so this brings me on to my final section, which is where hopefully I'm going to manage to bring us back to refugees, which is this question of, well, how much does asylum and forced migration fit into the inequality picture? Now, is that, is that really a, a fair description? And I think the first thing to say is perhaps obvious, but it needs saying, which is that, of course, the whole institution of asylum only really needs to exist because of the fact you've got fundamental inequality within the migration system. You know, uh, asylum is a humanitarian sticking plaster in many ways. It's designed to smooth over the fact that you have a migration system which makes it very difficult for the poor or desperate to move under any other circumstances. If you had equality of freedom of movement, if you had open borders, if you'd like to, if you prefer that, that term, you know, you'd still need humanitarian aid, of course, but you wouldn't necessarily need refugee status or, or an exception to the right of states to control borders. Um, and the second thing, which is probably equally obvious to say, is, is you know, it's not perhaps surprising that given asylum is this exception, um, which was created partly because of the recognition of, of the problems that having too restrictive a migration system created um, in terms of humanitarian consequences, it's not surprising that the past two decades, and possibly even longer, have seen a parallel turn to this restriction of migration in the restriction and limiting of asylum. Um, you know, even while insisting that the principle remains intact, you know, and this is of course another irony that you have every party, everyone says they want to protect genuine refugees, um, but who exactly a genuine refugee is seems to be something which quite a lot of people, um, you know, claim they've never met one. Um, you know, so you have this oddity of, of you know Nigel Farage publicly urging the UK government to accept more Syrian refugees at the same time as, as, as asking for all sorts of other policy changes that would clearly make it far more difficult um, for asylum seekers and refugees to, to actually reach the, the UK shore. Um, and so the result is you have this, this way in which the, the protection or rather the restriction of asylum, which is seen in reducing the asylum numbers, has increasingly come to be seen as, as a way of protecting the integrity of both the asylum and immigration systems at the same time as asserting a commitment to 
equality. And I think, you know, the Australian decision in July 2013 to refuse to allow asylum seekers to, to by vote to settle in, in Australia is, is, a, is a very good example of how protecting the rights of genuine refugees involves labelling everyone else as, as queue jumpers and directing public anger against foreigners cheating the system while preserving this idea of the proud record of welcoming and helping refugees as the as as, as the you know the ideal that, that everyone's trying to live up to. So you know the actual act of restricting asylum arrivals can be presented and is being presented as the act of preserving equity of access to asylum. Um, at the same time as it's pushing most of the poorest and neediest um, to turn to a regular and black market migration and into legitimate space. Um, I am definitely going to finish by six, I promise. So I'm going to you know, move, move swiftly through the last bit, but because I don't think certainly this audience doesn't need me to tell you about how asylum compounds economic inequality, how deprivation is systematic within asylum systems, um, you know, to what the extent to which poverty is, and I think this is a quote from, from Nando Segura and, and Jenny Alsop's piece, uh, you know, a panned outcome of public asylum policy. Um, but we certainly do have to kind of recognise that the poorest migrants who have to allow, rely on this exception being granted are kept poor and are forced to move out of the legitimate migration space altogether and become, become labelled as, as illegals. And one of the things which this reflects is, is, is something which isn't just about, I think, the sort of politics of, of asylum, but it's also about an industry and an economic rationale. Um, and one of the chaps in the book really investigates the fact that you have D4S Tusco uh, making a lot of money in policing borders and creating migrants. And in doing that, they're creating low-paid jobs for locals. Um, there are huge numbers um, in places like Arizona and places, um, you know, often in high unemployment areas who are basically <coughs> dependent upon this migration industry increasingly for exactly the kind of low-paid, poorly trained uh, job which exacerbates and which entrenches inequality within um, within nations as much as it's also being being used to entrench inequality between um, and keep the borders there. So I think there is a whole kind of logic of economic um, power and capital which which we have to start thinking about in terms of asylum and humanitarian issues as well, and, and perhaps perhaps be more direct and confronting. Um, but in a way, this all underlines this, this point which I want to finish on, which is the, the complex relationship between the legitimacy of the refugee and the migrant label, and what this says about how we think about immigration and inequality. Um, you know, we have this idea that refugees don't have any economic intent, and that largely they're grounded on this this idea that once you've moved as a refugee, you should have very limited freedom of movement and, and relatively good economic autonomy as well. Um, you know, convention travel documents, dysfunctional, don't really work. Um, we're told constantly refugees are not migrants. And while that absolutely is an important point in terms of protection, it also has implications in terms of freedom of movement and in terms of, of broader rights and, and what's being attached afterwards. Um, so the result is that you can't move unless you have a national passport. With, 
of course, some people manage to get convention travel documents and travel on them, but it's, it's pretty difficult um, often. The result is that movement happens either using national passports, which in, can lead to all sorts of issues around whether you still have a, a, a claim to protection, or you end up moving clandestinely um, and becoming an illegal immigrant and again being moved out of the legitimate space. So one of arguably the most inequitable consequences of this immigration system is that otherwise qualified refugees can't be immigrants at all, can't be migrants at all because of bureaucratic borders um, that are put in place. And so this is something I've written lots about, and I've just written, finished writing a, a, another paper for the Migration Policy Institute about this question of how refugees might need to be allowed the right to become migrants and how that might actually um, become something which, which is a, a policy um, issue or, or, and also a, an issue about rights and about norms. Um, I think there are some very practical ways in which actually getting refugees to encompass migration and to include the idea of rather than restrict freedom of movement could certainly help to counteract this connection between immigration and inequality. Um, and I can talk more about exactly kind of what that might look like um, in the Q&A if, if people want. But I think what I want to end on is the idea that this, is, this, this push to kind of bring refugees into the migration fold is, is actually an act of, I would suggest, non-discrimination. It's, it's about guaranteeing equal rights, even within what is clearly an inequitable immigration system, allowing refugees who would at least qualify under existing migration pathways to, um, to do so, rather than saying that because they've used this exceptional right to move in the first place, their, their ability to move beyond that is, is compromised. Um, and you know, I think that's a good place to perhaps tie us back into the idea that fundamentally, in the broader context, what Huddled Muscles is really about and is trying to do is to start a conversation which reverses this popular assumption that immigration and, and not the immigration system that we've created is, is, is exacerbating inequality and suggests that actually it's, it's the policies that we are pursuing which are creating the thing that we're claiming um, we're trying to combat. Um, so it's definitely time for, for questions now, and I'm aware this was a very broad topic um, and some pretty enormous ideas to try and cover in a short space of time. But I, I kind of wanted to do it partly because I, I did want to contribute sort of something which was slightly broader than perhaps a traditional research talk because you know I think sometimes it is important to talk about these broad brushstroke ideas and the principles behind the way in which we're constructing the world. Um, as well as the, the, the kind of richer details. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that has encouraged you all to go and buy my book uh, next week when it's out. It will be on Amazon. I'm sure I will be, yeah, plugging it away. Um, and, and also to go away and hopefully think about some of these questions, both in terms of empirical evidence, but also some of the, the, the kind of principles and, and value questions that they, they, they bring up, um, even if the answers aren't always, I think, obvious or absolute. Um, so on that note, hopefully you have some questions for me, which I can also try and answer. Um, about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.